forward to a movie later in the year, The Last Jedi. So I am the last intern. <laughs> so I need to get myself a T-shirt. But you can pray. Pray for more. We don't want to be the, I don't want to be the last one. Have some more. We've got some more churches to plant and send out. So. Well, um, this morning we're going to take a little break from our normal uh, preaching series. Uh, if you've been for a, with us for a while, you'll know that we've been going through a, a series in the book of Revelation, which Pastor Paul has been leading us in. Uh, this week and the next uh, two weeks after this, we're going to take a little break and, and do a mini-series looking at the Reformation. Uh, many of you will know, will know that this past week we've celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And rather than a particular date, really it is a period of church history. Um, but if any date has to be assigned to it, then October the 31st would be a good one. On that day in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther issued a message to the church, the church based in Rome. Nowadays, he might have put something on Facebook or posted to his blog, but in that day, he, uh, he nailed to a church door in Wittenberg 95 theses or ideas that he wanted to discuss and debate in an attempt to bring the church back to what he found in the Bible and what he felt that the church had wandered dangerously far from in very particular ways. Now, Luther wasn't the only person that we associate with the Reformation, but he was certainly one of the earliest and, and perhaps made one of the biggest impressions. But there are many others too, names like John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, William Tyndale, Thomas Cranmer, the English Puritans, and then there's many more besides them. And certainly the original intention of the Reformers was not to, to break up the church, it wasn't to divide the church in any way, but it was to reform the church, to return to central truths of the Bible, um, essentially to the gospel of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about one of the key elements of that, and I'll come on to that in a moment. But in many ways, the church had become, uh, the church in Rome had become like a painting that had been in the news recently. I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, there was a painting found hanging in a National Trust property in Scotland. And the picture was of a portrait of the first Duke of Buckingham. And it was believed to be a copy of the original. I think we've got a picture to show. It was believed to be a copy of the original painted by the 16th century Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens, and who was considered to be one of the most influential painters in history. And his genuine, his original art, works of art are worth millions. So you can show that next slide. Now, the original of this painting, this portrait, had been missing for almost 400 years. There you go. Oh, one side. I want a bit, bit of... Uh... That's okay. I had some frills. I thought I looked a bit like Nick, Nick Lilly, but I don't know. Maybe not. So. <laughs> anyway. It just so happened that recently, just a few months ago, an expert on Rubens was visiting this property and um, the picture caught his eye and he started asking himself some questions and this led to some conservation and some cleaning on the piece. And they found layers upon layers of dirt and overpainting on the picture had obscured some of the original details of the picture and disguised some of the painting techniques. 
And once they did the conservation work and restored this to its original um, picture, they realized that rather than being a copy of the original, they were able to authenticate it as Rubens' original masterpiece. And now it's properly displayed and appreciated for its true beauty and worth. Well, just like that painting, Luther and the other reformers found that centuries of theologians and churchmen had obscured the masterpiece and beauty of God's gospel, either through intentional overpainting of man-made teachings and practices, or simply through build-up of dirt from carelessness and neglect. The reformers worked hard to re remove that dirt and those extra layers to reveal once again the beauty and wonder of the gospel to God's church. Now, there's many points worth remembering um, about the Reformation, and the point is not to really celebrate any one person or their accomplishments. Like all of us here today, the Reformers all were, were deeply flawed, uh, some of them terribly so. But rather, the main point in remembering the Reformation is to remember and apply the lessons learned that the Reformation teaches, and that we would be renewed in our daily delight and celebration of the gospel of God. Now, you may know that the lessons of the Reformation are typically summarized under five points, commonly called the five solas. I always want to say five soilers after our sister, but it's five solas, <laughs> from the Latin word meaning alone. So there's sola scriptura. That is, the Bible is our sole authority in all matters of life and godliness. There's sola gratia and sola fide. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. There's solus Christus, meaning there is no other mediator between man and God than his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And sole Deo Gloria, that all of life can and should be lived for the glory of God. Now the key differences between those and the Church of Rome was not the five different elements of those points, but actually the one reoccurring word, sola, or alone. You see, the church had at that time added or supplemented each of those points with other teachings and practices not found in scriptures. And in the case of the gospel, particularly in the case of the gospel, supplements are not good for you. In fact, they can be poisonous and deadly. So over the next three Sundays, we're going to consider three of the solas. It's not that two of them are less important, than it's just we don't have time in the church calendar to do all five. So, as I mentioned, today we're going to look at sola gratia, or grace alone. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that shows us that these errors that the, Refor the Reformers were seeking to correct is not, were not original problems with the 16th century church, but they are temptations and deviations that God's people have always been prone to, including you and I today. So let's take a look at an episode in the life of the apostolic church and turn to Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible, I, can encourage, I encourage you to turn there, Acts chapter 15, otherwise it will be projected for us. But before we read, let me give you a little bit of context. So leading into this chapter, the Apostle Paul has completed his first missionary journey. He's traveled via Cyprus and gone into what's now modern-day Turkey, and he's preached to Jew and Greek Gentile alike, preaching the gospel, and in so doing, he has caused division 
between those who have heard and believed and those who have heard and were outraged. But despite much opposition, even to the point of being stoned, almost to the point of death, God works through Paul and his companion Barnabas and others to make many converts in that region and establish churches throughout the area. And now, leading into chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have returned to their home church in Antioch, Syria, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So I hope that's given you enough time to turn to Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read verse 1 to 11, and then I'm going to skip a little piece, pick it up in verse 22, and read to verse 31. So follow along with me if you can there, please. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And then in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men amongst the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us to having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. 
And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to look back through church history and learn. And so, Lord, I pray that both from Acts chapter 15 and from the lesson of the Reformation, that you would help us guard your truth rightly in our hearts to understand it. And Lord, more than simply hold it in our heads, Lord, by your Spirit, would you press it into our hearts that we would be more transformed by your grace as a consequence of your words, power, and effect in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul now encounters some unofficial visitors from church headquarters in Jerusalem. And these are some Jewish believers. And they are seeking to add to the gospel that Paul has been preaching, a gospel supplemented with the additional requirements of the need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, as we see in verse 1 and verse 5. Now, we're not told the motives of these men from Judea, but it seems like they are converts from the Jewish Pharisees. And we're just not told. We don't know whether they just didn't have a strong understanding of the gospel. Maybe they had a hard time letting go of beliefs and practices of their forefathers. Maybe they were influenced by peer pressure from unconverted Jews around them. We just, just aren't told and we don't know. But what we do know is that Paul was having none of it. I love Luke's understatement in verse 2, that they had no small dissension and debate. I can only imagine what was going on there. But Paul and Barnabas, they understood that the issue went straight to the heart of the gospel. And so they needed to resolve this definitively for the church. And so they went to Jerusalem, still the seat of the church and the apostles, they went there to settle the matter. Now, what was at stake? It was far more than whether the guys needed to go and have a little surgical procedure. At stake, was what we read in verse 1, and, and the Jewish converts were saying, what was at stake was the way of salvation. Paul himself, a converted Pharisee, knew that if you added, though, just one element of rule to following the gospel and expected to keep it, you are fundamentally changing the gospel and the basis on which you relate to God. If you believe that circumcision or obedience to the law of Moses was necessary for salvation, then you believe that you could in some way merit or deserve favor and salvation from God. The reformers knew the same issue was at stake in their confrontation with the Roman church. Particularly at the time, the church had added requirements for salvation in the form of various sacraments that they claimed were necessary for salvation. But even more than simply adding ways to gain merit with God through things you could do, they had added things that were called indulgences, which was merit with God through things that you could actually buy with hard cash. And Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Reformers knew that adding merit to our basis of salvation and relationship with God was a bad idea. See Peter's response to the crowd and to the church in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting gods to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
And the Apostle Paul picks up the same theme throughout his whole letter to the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 5, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The reason bringing merit into the picture was such a bad idea was that the moment you do, you're asking God to deal with you not on the basis of His grace, but on the basis of His justice. You're saying to God, in effect, I want you to notice what I've done here, and I want you to give me my due. Judge me, and judge me fairly. And the testimony of the Bible and of human history, and of my heart and your heart, is that if God were to give us our due, if he were to judge us fairly, you and I are in deep trouble. Because I don't get to specify which rules I'm judged by. This is God's universe. He is the one who made me and he made the rules. I don't get to pick and choose, not the ones that I'd like to be judged on, but also when I'd like to be judged on them. Yes, God, you can judge me based on how well I treat my wife and kids, but only do it on those days that I've had a good rest and I've had a good day at work. Don't judge me on those days that I'm tired and work's been really miserable. You can judge me on my church attendance, that would be fine, but um, just don't look too closely at the offering basket. And, oh, <clears throat> never judge me on my attitude to my work colleagues, please. It doesn't work that way. And if you and I stop and think about it, it wouldn't make sense if it did either. And yet we can so easily live our lives that way. That's why Peter calls salvation by obedience to God's law a yoke that no one can keep. We are all bent away from what God calls right. We all sin. And were he to judge us based on our obedience to the law we would all be rightly condemned. That is why Paul so vehemently argued with these men in Antioch and dragged the debate up to Jerusalem. Because he knew that the gospel that God had revealed to him and called him to preach to the Gentiles, that God had provided another way to relate to him, a way to relate to him that does not judge us based on our obedience to the law. For such a way would be death for all of us. But God has provided a way for us to relate to him by grace. After calling the, the law a yoke in verse 10, Peter goes on in verse 11, perhaps the hinge of the whole chapter, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Grace is God's ill-deserved favor and love. And through God's ill-deserved favor and love, he gave you and I a way to relate to him through the perfect obedience of his Son, Jesus Christ. And there is no other way by which we can be saved and avoid what we deserve under God's justice. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, who perfectly obeyed the full law of God, 
not just in outward expression, but through a heart bent in love toward his Father. Jesus Christ alone could have confidence to face God's justice and be commended. But instead, he chose to face God's justice and be condemned. Taking on himself the disobedience and sin of man and bearing the full punishment for sin in himself on the cross that God's justice demanded. And then by the power and majesty of God who reigns over all things, including death, Jesus rose to vibrant new life and was given the throne of his Father's kingdom. So now... God holds out to all that whoever believes in the name of his son, Jesus, that his death was for you and that you can have new life in him, God promises eternal life and avoidance of all and any condemnation according to his law. The Apostle Paul writes this and puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, if that is true, and church, it is true, that we can relate to God by grace, it begs the question, then what do we do with the law? How do we make sense of the apparent law, or at least some sections of the law, that was given to the church of Antioch in our passage today, and that they were told to obey? Well, let's first consider two errors in response to the law. The first we've already seen in the Jewish believers, and it's called legalism. The belief that I can merit God's favor through my obedience or my actions. Now sometimes legalism works ahead of salvation, placing demands on a person that they need to complete to, in order to earn God's salvation. And other times legalism works after salvation and places demands on you in order to pay God back for his goodness in saving you. And as such, because it can work either before or after salvation, all of us who are in Christ must guard against a spirit of legalism creeping into our own hearts. It doesn't matter if you've just tasted God's grace in salvation or have enjoyed God's grace for many years. While vestiges of sin remain within us, the human heart will be looking for ways to add merit to my standing before God. Those ways of merit might be quite obvious and outward, equivalent to the call for circumcision, some other form of outward display of obedience, my church attendance, what things I do, or things I don't do. I don't do drugs. Pay attention to that. But I think more commonly, the biggest danger toward legalism comes from subtle 
<clears throat> and inward ways in which I fool myself into thinking that I have some merit before God. For me personally, a long-standing temptation has been to worry about my emotional response to the gospel. Am I sorry enough for my sin? Am I joyful enough for my salvation? Now, in absolute terms, the answer to both of those questions is no. So I'm presented with the temptation to try harder at both. Essentially to see if I can get God to be satisfied with me. And if I submit to that temptation, and I've submitted to it too many times, of course you never get to the point of thinking that God is satisfied in those ways. So you keep trying harder and harder and you get more miserable and more miserable. And that is why Paul said, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm in your freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, we must be diligent to guard against the legalistic heart to put merit into our basis of our relationship with God. But that verse I just quoted in Galatians chapter 5 leads us nicely, the idea of freedom, leads us nicely into the second error that we can make in response to the law. And it's the error of license or licentiousness. There's another term you may have heard, it's antinomianism, anti-law. I prefer to use the term license because it makes a nicer parallel with legalism and it's a little easier to say. The license essentially picks up on the idea that, yes, we're free in Christ. And it runs with that idea and says, I'm free and I'm forgiven in Christ. It doesn't matter what I do. And it can be seen in a life of lax pursuit for holiness and a life comfortable in harboring pet sins. Again, the Apostle Paul confronts this thinking when he writes to the church in Rome. He says rhetorically in Romans chapter 5, as well as Romans chapter 6, Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? To which he answers immediately with an emphatic, By no means. As we've seen from Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem church both affirmed salvation by grace alone and set some requirements on the church in Antioch. So understanding that God is not contradicting himself here, and God never contradicts himself here or anywhere, we understand that they can't be saying, first of all, you're saved by grace, and then they're saying, but you also need to meet, meet these requirements in order to be saved. So let's look at the specific requirements given to the Gentile church and see as we look at them, how they help us understand the role of the law in the life of the believer. The Gentile church is given four requirements in verse 29. Look there again with me. They're told to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, and that food has blood in it or has been strangled, and to keep themselves from sexual immorality. Now, simply based on the number and specificity of these requirements, then these requirements alone, we know that they can't be considered conditions for salvation. If they've been told to keep the law, 
What's happened to all the other laws that we know of and are just as good, if not perhaps more useful, than these ones? Love God. Obey your parents. Don't steal. But this letter to the church in Antioch is very specific. Just these four things. Just keep these things and you'll do well. Now, they're not being told to keep these requirements in order to earn God's favor and salvation. Given the context, these requirements fall into two categories of requirements replaced on the believer, similar to you and I today. The first is the requirement to be considerate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and in a similar way, not to place a stumbling block in front of people in coming to know Jesus. For Gentile Christians living in a city full of Jews and Jewish converts to the Christian faith, the requirements to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and food with blood and being strangled is just an evidence of them being sensitive to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. That they're not trying to tempt them to sin by copying them and then doing something that their conscience prohibits them from doing. And in the same way, they don't want to do anything that would put up an offense to a Jew looking on from the outside that would be a barrier for them accepting the gospel of Christ. And given that context in this town not far from Jerusalem, with a high Jewish population, this explains why Paul later on writes to the church in Corinth and, and gives them instructions which are actually far more lenient about food sacrificed to idols. Because way out in Greece, there's less likelihood of encountering a large Jewish population or Jewish converts. So less, likely for, less likelihood of offense. So that's one category of understanding these requirements, that it's just in, in loving my brother and sister, how I can consider them before I consider myself. The second requirement to abstain from sexual immorality is a universal instruction that is never relaxed in Scripture. And the reason why this one is called out specifically for the Gentiles is likely because of the lifestyle and practices that they had been, been in before coming to know Christ. A lifestyle and practices that had probably broken their moral compass so badly that in this area they needed some specific redirecting and recalibrating to God's standard. So in this very specific example... We see that there are moral standards laid down in God's law that still need to be obeyed for the church at all times. In fact, the New Testament is full of instructions to believers for them to what they should do in following Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law in Matthew chapter 5. By God's grace, we are in Christ. And therefore, we are counted as having fulfilled the law in him. So now we are called and given the grace and the power by the Spirit of Christ to live in him according to God's law. I think sometimes we have those two ideas in our head, license and legalism, and we think of them as being two opposites to one another. And we can think that if we're prone to one, then the solution is just a little bit more of the other. So if I'm prone to legalism, then what I need is I need to relax a little bit, take a little bit more of the, out of the license book, and vice versa. But as Pastor Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book, The Whole Christ, legalism and license are not our opposites, 
but actually spring from the same source. They both spring from the same source of self-righteousness. Legalism counts my self-righteousness to obey the law, even just some parts of the law, and therefore thinks that I can deserve or merit God's favor in some small way. License counts my self-righteousness to reject the law, even some parts of it, and says I'm still going to be okay with God. It presumes that I've got God's favor. Both flow from a heart of self-righteousness. I'll be okay in my own way. So the answer of seeing legalism in your own life is not to borrow a bit more license or the other way around. The answer to either condition is more of God's grace in the gospel. If you see a legalist spirit within you, then you need more of God's grace to apply the truth that Jesus has completely fulfilled what you and I could never do. And in him, we have all of God's favor that it is possible to have, the favor that he gives to his own son. And if you see a spirit of license in you, then we need more of God's grace to apply the truth that our freedom wasn't free, but Jesus paid for it with his blood. And if we are now in him, if we are now found in him, he gives us his spirit to live in his ways for the rest of our lives. Notice in verse 11, that hinge verse again, Peter uses the future tense to speak of our salvation, that we will be saved through the grace of Christ. The Bible speaks of our salvation, and rightly so, both in past, present, and future tenses. Once, when we are finally called to Christ forever, we will look back with perfect vision and see that we were first saved by grace. And we will see that we continued and grew by grace. And that we were brought safely into his presence by grace. Brothers and sisters, for me, this, this talk of God's grace is rich and it's relatively straightforward to understand, at least with our heads. But I find it is far harder to grasp it and push it down into my heart and live it. Martin Luther said, It is very hard for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. So if you're like me, even though I think I understand God's grace in the gospel, we need help to apply it and live out God's grace in our lives. So let me conclude by asking a few questions, questions that I found personally very helpful, questions that help us examine ourselves and help us to see areas in our lives where maybe we can grow in grace. Think of it as a little grace checkup. So four questions to consider. Firstly, do I view others through the lens of grace? Or like the Jewish believers in Acts 15, do I view them through the lens of legalism? Legalism imposes conditions on someone that in some way they need to meet certain criteria. They need to obey some rules. They need to clean up their lives before God can show them love and favor. And for that matter, before I show them love and favor. It may be that person on TV that the media is currently loving to hate. 
Or it may be someone you work with, or someone you live with, or someone sitting nearby you in this church. Or it may be that stranger walking down the street that simply looks different to you. Or it could be that same-sex couple holding hands as they walk into church. Through which lens do you view them? Grace rightfully received becomes grace rightfully given. As we echo Peter's words, I believe that I will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Yes, yes, love wants the best for people, which is found in obedience to God's moral standards. But grace does not make obedience a requirement for love. Just as God's grace didn't make my obedience a requirement for his love. Secondly, <clears throat> second question. Because the heart of legalism responds to sin by trying harder, and the heart of license essentially says, well, sin doesn't really matter, how regular is repentance in your life? When confronted with sin and God's grace for forgiveness in the gospel, the heart of legalism finds grace uncomfortable. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't quite sound fair and reasonable. Don't I have to do something to make up for it? Okay, I'll take grace, God, but I'll also try harder too. Don't you worry. When confronted with sin and grace for forgiveness in the gospel, the heart of license finds God's grace unnecessary. All right, let's just move on. Let's not make a big deal about it. But when confronted with sin and God's grace for forgiveness in the gospel, the heart transformed by grace humbly says, I'm sorry, both to God and to others hurt by the sin. The heart transformed by grace is assured of God's forgiveness, not because of the depth of sorrow felt, but because God promises to give it through his son. They agree with the first of Luther's 95 theses, which read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So how regular is repentance in your life? Thirdly, how are you doing in pursuing the many and varied means of grace that God is so kind to provide? A man who knows he has no strength to swim but finds himself treading water in the ocean is quick to realize the seriousness of his situation. He will clutch at anything and everything that floats so that he can continue to draw in fresh lungfuls of air that keep him alive as opposed to drawing in fresh lungfuls of water that will only draw him down deeper. The legalist deals with trials of life and temptations to sin in their own strength, trying to give more effort and getting more and more weary and miserable in the process. License doesn't realize the seriousness of sin and trials and temptations until things turn really desperate, perhaps not until real harm is done. Those in Christ, by grace alone, already know themselves dependent upon God's grace. 
And they readily find more grace for trials and for temptations in and through the means of grace God kindly provides to his people that they eagerly and readily embrace. They read and meditate on his word and find food for their souls. They pray and give expression to the one who hears and who helps. They gather with the body of believers God has joined them to whenever they can, engaging one another, caring, serving, laughing, crying together, and finding a mutual upbuilding of faith. There are these and many other means of grace God extends to His people. So how are you doing in your pursuit of them? Fourthly, and lastly, as I invite the band to come up, how are you doing in rejoicing in God's grace? The soul that lives and breathes by God's grace rejoices and celebrates His love and mercy, not just once at the point of conversion, but every day as it draws in fresh grace. Legalism finds no joy because it never quite gets there in meeting the standard of rules that they set for themselves. License has no sense of the enormity and wonder of God's grace because it sees no need for forgiveness and grace. The believers in Antioch rejoiced when they read in the letter and heard from the apostles, you don't need to meet a list of rules that God makes you to love, for God to love you. You couldn't even if you tried. God loves you because he loves you. And he gave his son so that you could be saved. For the heart that has embraced God's grace in Christ, that is good news to rejoice in every day because every day I need that truth and I need God's grace afresh in my life. Now, as you consider those questions, it may reveal ways in which the human heart, your heart, does indeed have a hard time grasping the grace of God. But have faith and be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that if God is pointing out ways of legalism or license in your heart, and oh, by the way, we can have both in there at the same time, he does so not to condemn. Rather, he is already graciously at work in you and will give you grace for repentance and grace for faith and grace for transformation through the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace. So let us live by grace.